My granddad, Carswell, was a man of extraordinarily few words. Uh, Really, he was almost entirely silent, um, the exception being that he had a memorized catalog of jokes to tell when everyone else's conversation got to a point where he could insert one. Now, Midwesterners in general are not particularly reactive folks. Um, When I told the Carswells I was going to seminary to study to become a priest, the general response was, oh, okay. (laughs) For those of you who don't speak Midwestern, the rough translation for, oh, okay, while someone is pleasantly nodding is, We are shocked and confused and need time to understand what to say here, and we might revisit it next Christmas. (laughs) My granddad never brought up the subject of my religious vocation with me uh, then or in the future, but I like to think that he approved because whenever he saw me from then on, uh, the jokes he would tell were all about pastors. Um, He had about a dozen of them on rotation. (laughs) Here's one. There was a pastor of a church who gave a sermon one Sunday. People left and thanked him. The week went by and Sunday rolled around again. The pastor got up in the pulpit and preached the very same sermon. Now some people noticed, but a lot of people dozed, you know, so no one said anything. The week went by, and he got up in the pulpit on Sunday again and preached the same sermon. Now this time, nearly everyone noticed, but they were too embarrassed to say anything to the preacher. Was he losing his mind? Had he forgot his medication? But when the fourth week came around and he gave the same sermon again, the church folk got together and elected a representative to go to the pastor and say something, because this is how Midwesterners function. That week, the man went into the church and said, Pastor, folks have noticed that you're giving the same sermon every week. The pastor said, Yep. The man did not expect this response and asked, a bit flustered, Well, Why? The pastor said, as soon as people start doing what I tell them to do in the sermon, I'll preach a new one. (laughs) It's just terrible. (laughs) It's just terrible. Um, But that's the joke. Um, It's terrible for a number of reasons. Um, First of all, it assumes a pastor has you all in mind when we write sermons, measuring you up to tell you what to do. Not a fan of that model, personally. I, I do think of you when I write my sermons, of course, the things I hear you wonder about and struggle with in the faith. But I also think of me, um, probably first of all, and not in a selfish way, I hope. It's not helpful to have someone shouting from the boat to you to swim harder, you know? You connect with the person who's in the struggle with you. Barbara Brown Taylor always asks preachers, what's saving your life right now? Preach that. Because if there's nothing there, if there's no connection for you at the core of your being, it's empty noise. 
The other problem with the sermon as instruction model is that it assumes there is some concrete thing every one of you ought to be doing. That might work up to a point. There are things, arguably, in the Christian life everyone ought to be doing, in caring for others, praying, forgiving, etc. But it gets muddier when you start to actually wonder what that looks like. What does the caring look like for your poor neighbor, or for your addictive child, for strangers overseas? And what kind of prayer? The disciplined kind at regular intervals, the random utterance of need in community alone? And what does forgiveness look like for the gossip at work, for the bigoted uncle at Christmas, for the murderer in another state? I have found that the best sermons do not tell you what to do. They ask something much harder. They ask you to see life in an entirely different way. Today, you are treated to the greatest sermon of all time. And unfortunately, you have me commenting on it. (laughs) The Sermon on the Mount is one of the few records of one of Jesus' sermons. We'll read it for three weeks straight. Sounds long, but it's only 2,300 words. So double the length of my weekly sermons, less than 20 minutes said out loud. I've sat through a lot longer, and not from the Son of God, I'll have you know. (laughs) There will be some concrete things Jesus tells you to do in the coming weeks. To pray, to give money, to forgive. But the rest is, well, difficult. He'll tell us anger is as bad as murder. He'll say you can't serve God and money. He tells us to consider the birds. The sermon will command us to love our enemies. And it's breezy as you like, as if there were a switch you could change from hate to love rather than the gut-wrenching ordeal of beginning to pray for the person you despise most in the world. Every time I read this sermon, I think that Jesus has almost none of us in mind because he's pointing us somewhere that none of us can see to a world we can't imagine. Today's section of the sermon is called the Beatitudes. Um, Beatitudes means blessings, right? A series of statements of how God favors certain people. Have you read this list? Blessed are the poor, the weak, the shy, the sad. Do you buy it? I don't know about you, but when I see hashtag blessed out in the world, it's always of warm family scenes and polished smiles and vacation rentals. It's never of someone crying or hurting or forgiving. I do not think attributes like reviled and persecuted would be good additions to my resume, let's be honest. 2,000 years of hearing this same sermon, we still aren't doing it. It's still pointing somewhere we can't see. Or maybe we can, just not often. For those of you who don't know I moved here from Memphis. 
My wife asked me the other day if I miss it. That's a hard question to answer. It was hard living in a place where you were afraid to drive on the freeway because of the constant random shootings. It was hard living in a place where in a youth group of, what, 15 kids, two of the girls had had their cars stolen in one year, one carjacked in broad daylight. And it's hard when the city responds to tame, violent crime and we witness, the whole world witnesses, what we are capable of, what we do with our righteous power to those who don't fall in line. The tension between power and vulnerability is never far there. The power that makes us safe and the vulnerability that makes us, how did Jesus put it, pure of heart? This is where Jesus is trying to point us. He knows where we fall. He knows that we are people inclined to self-interest, security, that these become idols of our devotion. His sermon is one we'd need to hear over and over, that we would have to repeat to ourselves every time we looked into the eyes of our enemy, of the outsider, of the powerless, to begin to recognize what God's blessing looks like to our eyes, untrained to the sight. If you are able, this strange and unlikely blessing will become yours.